Welcome to On the Record with Furniture Today, a podcast that goes behind the headlines to look at the news and the newsmakers, the people and the personalities that give the furniture industry its unique flavor. I'm your host, Bill McLaughlin, Editor-in-Chief of Furniture Today. Welcome to this week's edition of On the Record. As you listen to this, uh, I am currently at the Furniture Today Leadership Conference in Naples, Florida, which is kind of the theme of this week's podcast. For those of you who were not able to attend last year, we have a little bit of a treat for you. Uh, At our leadership conference, one of the signature events is a leaders panel featuring presidents and CEOs from furniture retailers around the country. These are uh, retail panels led by a retail moderator. So the the issues that are discussed are those that are the most relevant and important to retailers uh, as determined by themselves. Uh, our panel was moderated by Clarence Smith, CEO of Haverty's, and panelists included Irv Blumkin from Nebraska Furniture Mart, Keith Koenig from City Furniture, and Brian Woods from Jerome's. And uh, you'll hear them discussing a number of the issues that are most impactful to their business. And uh, even though this took place in November of 2018, I think you'll find that the issues are very much current with the things that retailers face today. So please enjoy our CEO panel. Our our next panel is, uh, this is a concept we started last year. This is a CEO panel and we have asked a CEO to lead it because nobody understands retail better than somebody who lives, works, and breathes that business every day. We have an incredibly august body of people who are gonna come up and join us. I'm gonna turn things over. Clarence Smith from Haverty's is our moderator today. He has graciously agreed to lead this august panel. We have Mr. Irv Blumkin from Nebraska Furniture Mart and Brian Woods from Jerome's. And uh, Clarence, I will turn it over to you. At some point, we, they have agreed graciously to take questions from the audience, um, unscripted and unplanned. So I admire your courage. <laughs> Thank you, Bill. Uh, we're, we're excited to be here. Uh, Bill asked a couple of us old war horses, uh, two of us here, and then Keith, and then we got the young guy. Uh, and Brian, but uh, just to talk about some of the challenges that we're facing and, and how we're looking at it. Um, it's, been a, uh, it's been an interesting time all the way back to the, to the Great Recession. And um, all of us have tried to recover from that and try to replace ourselves and reposition ourselves. And each of us do it differently, as you, as you well know. Um, and I, I thought maybe we'd talk a little bit to start about who we are and where we are. So Haverty's is in, hello there, Keith. Welcome. There. So Haverty's is in, uh, we're, in 10, we're in 16 states, uh, and we've got 120 stores, so mostly the South. And then for many years, um, we, were, we were a credit house, but now we're a full-service uh, furniture retailer, and we've tried to upgrade to move away, frankly, from the big players that uh, dominated our market, and that's Ashley and Rooms to Go. And then we've got some new players like uh, Irv, who's come into Dallas, who's changed uh, the way we have to look at things. So we've tried to move to be a better retailer and provide a little better service, uh, more customization, and get out of the fray, even though we know it's there. So Irv? We're generally in the Midwest. We uh, have uh, built our 
large stores, not a lot of them. So we're in Kansas, uh, Omaha. We have a store in Des Moines and uh, Dallas. And uh, we try to make our stores a, a, a differentiated experience, a destination. And it's built on great value and high volume. <clears throat> so uh, we're in a half a state. We're in uh, Southern California. Um, we have full-line stores basically from L.A. down south into uh, San Diego and uh, just recently opened up a handful of uh, standalone dream shops, uh, mattress stores. And uh, what really differentiates us is that our business model is everyday low price. So, uh, you know, we, we really base the business on EDLP and, and transparency. Uh, we have two brands, City Furniture, and we're proud to have the Ashley Home Store licensee uh, for South Florida. We've moved into Orlando, so now Ashley, our best friends, are also our uh, competitors, so that's kind of interesting. Uh, City Furniture focuses on uh, great value, and our showrooms are getting larger. We're doing a lot of interesting things we'll chat about, but uh, same-day delivery, uh, free shipping, uh, a broad range of product from very affordable starting price to uh, Bernhardt galleries, which we're proud of. So we, we cover a wide, wide range. Well, we've got several things that uh, are, are at the forefront. One of the things clearly we're all concerned about, interested in, is e-commerce. So the, the question that, that uh, I want to address is, what are we doing? What are the brick and mortar stores and the, and the different operators doing? to compete with e-commerce. And I'll start with you, Keith. Well, this is a time of great disruption. It's, it's a time of great opportunity. Uh, retail furniture is being disrupted not only by e-commerce, but a lot of new competitors like uh, TJ Maxx with their home goods and home sense uh, product. Costco is a huge seller of furniture. And then there's all the online. And, and uh, so this is a time of great disruption. The furniture. Furniture stores, a couple of givens that we have to understand, <clears throat> is furniture purchases as a share of consumers' disposable spending continues to decrease over the last number of years. And furniture store share of that furniture market spend continues to decrease. So we are seeing more and more competitors. The question is, how are we going to evolve to be able to take the realities that are going on right now and in home in home furnishings, the big disruptor that we all have to pay most attention to, uh, I think even more than Wayfair, is Amazon. Amazon is absolutely killing it at starting price merchandise. Wayfair is killing it on with enormous volume increases on very affordable furniture. So what we have done is invest heavily in our platform, or we continue to invest heavily on our platform, continue to invest heavily in creating new content for our platform so the shopping experience is inspirational and change our product line to understand the realities of what our competitors are selling well that we can also do well with. Brian? Yeah, I think uh, you know, Keith said it perfectly. I mean, um, online, from our perspective, is both uh, the biggest risk and the biggest opportunity. And as we go back, you know, just even a short couple of years ago, I think as brick and mortar retailers, we're looking at, um, you know, looking at competing with online from the standpoint of, you know, are we going to win or are they going to win? And how are we going to out, out position uh, our experience within the store 
to really take market share. And you know, we've evolved that thinking to, you know, we're, we're all gonna win. And you know, retail is, is really an integration of brick and mortar and online. And that's, that's the way that we're positioning ourselves is to look at the online experience, whether it's through content or the user experience or the assortment or the value proposition and really trying to integrate, you know, understanding that most consumers, if not all, are going to hit uh, the website or, or search digitally for the things that they're looking for and who carries them and make sure that that, uh, that, that experience carries over into the store format. So uh, that's the way that we're looking at it. It's uh, definitely a risk. I absolutely agree with, uh, with Keith that you know, we're seeing Amazon as a real player. And you know, I think last year we were talking about whether it was Wayfair or all these online betting, um, you know, digital betting guys, really we're seeing on, uh, Amazon as the aggressive player that's really going after low price merchandise. Well, I don't have a lot uh, to add other than uh, um, every one of these players in every form take a piece of our pie and they're attacking us and they're being disruptive and you have to adapt, you have to change, you have to, have to service the customer the, the way they want to be serviced and in the form they want to be serviced and you have to digitally be very uh, aggressive, you have to uh, be able to serve the customers how they want to be served over time and if you stand still or you stay in your little traditional box, you won't survive. Irv, I noticed your, your big store in Dallas, um, you, you also change the prices all day long based on scanning the, retail, uh, the, the web. How, how is that working and does that, is that an important part of how you react to the internet pricing? Part of our reputation and part of uh, our business strategy is to make sure we've got the most competitive, best value uh, in the markets that we participate in. And so we do have digital tagging, and we do scan uh, scan um, the web every single day. And uh, I wouldn't say we change our prices multiple times during the day, although our competitors at some times do. Um, but we try to make sure we're positioned aggressively. And uh, when the customer walks in, and if they're going to pull up a side or pull up something, they'll be, they'll see that we're very competitive. Well, it's a challenge, uh, and one I don't think any of us have a direct answer for, but uh, what we focus on is just making sure that that engagement, that experience with our customers is the one that helps her feel comfortable with dealing with us. So it all has to work well. It has to work all the way through the website, to the contact, to the final delivery, and uh, we have to execute better than anybody else to make that happen. Uh, one of the things that uh, we, we look at pretty closely, in, and I think you've got some examples on the other side, of big stores versus smaller stores. And do we have several stores that cover a market, or do you have one or two big stores? And uh, our average store is about 35,000 feet. They used to be in the 55,000 feet range, but as we, as we developed stores and saw opportunities, we couldn't find the, the right economics to do the bigger store. So that's the box that we're comfortable with and with the internet and the access to 
other product, uh, we can extend the showroom and we feel like that works for us. Irv, tell us about your, your format. I'm not sure bit. I could operate in a 30,000 square foot environment. You know, um, one, of the, one of the teachings of both my grandmother and father is you stick to what you know best and you live within your circle of competence. So our circle of competence is operating big stores with high volume, with operational efficiencies, and, and uh, you know, it's, it's been successful. And I think all companies have different paths to taking care of the customer. And in our path, it's just about destination, uh, try to dominate the categories that, we're, that we play in, and give the customers a great shopping experience, uh, a, a big physical store that you can't uh, see in a lot of other places. And so it's just sort of our strategy. And all paths can work differently, and you can get to the same objective, but that's the one that works for us, and that's the one we're going to stick with. So your Dallas store is, how big is it? Our Dallas store is 550,000 square feet of retail <laughs> and 1.3 million square feet of warehouse all under one roof. And our other stores are in the 450,000 to $500,000 feet range. Are you going to open a lot more of those? Uh, <laughs> depends on who you ask. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, uh, we've, we've, we've uh, we, we, tend to try to do things over periods of time. There's no, the, the one thing about being a partner with Warren Buffett is there's no gun to our head. He lets, our run, he lets us run our business, let, lets us do it at our pace. And uh, um, if the time comes right, we may entertain it. But at this point, we have no plans. We've got 433 acres down in Dallas, and we've got a big, a big uh, part of the strategy is to create a destination, not just for furniture, but a shopping destination for customers. And as we build that out, Time will tell if that's a good strategy or not a good strategy. And if you don't think that Nebraska coming to your market would affect your market, you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> they opened a monster right in the best part of our uh, Dallas territory, and it did affect us. We're still there, and we're still uh, growing again, but it was, a, it was an impact. And, we all knew it would be. Unfortunately, we had to hear about it for about five years. So it was the only question we ever got when we talked to analysts. What about this Nebraska furniture market? What's it going to do to you? But you've been there now three, three years? Yeah, going on three years, yeah. So We're just farm boys from Nebraska. <laughs> <laughs> so, Brian, uh, size of stores. So our size is uh, more similar to yours, Clarence. Uh, 35, 40,000 um, is our average. Some are a little bit bigger, some a little bit smaller. Um, you know, and, and my perspective on this is, I think that you know, it varies greatly based on the market that you're in and uh, traffic patterns and that kind of thing. Um, you know, in Southern California, you, know, you hear about the horrible traffic, it's true. Um, and so you know, for, for us, um, what we see is, is really focusing on on the, uh, the A locations. You know, that's become you know, critically important for us is that the more traffic that's around, and I think that you know, there's, there's really different theories on whether you wanna be right next to competitors or you know, a few miles down the road. You know, for, uh, in Southern California anyway, the feeding frenzy and the traffic frenzy uh, seems to be good for everybody. And so um, you know, the size of the locations is closer to, like I said, 35 to 40,000 square feet. We'd never be able to find a, a location, 
you know, that's uh, half a million square feet or more, uh, it'd probably cost, you know, I don't know, a quarter of, quarter of California. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's our strategy. It's, it's more about the A locations and high traffic. Keith, you just opened a brand new store right down the street, right in our bailiwick. Mm -hmm. So uh, tell us about your, your new philosophy. So we have both. It, in, in South Florida, our city furniture showrooms are between 55 and 75,000 square feet, but we're often side by side with an Ashley showroom. So the facilities are often around 100,000, 110,000 square feet. Uh, up here in Orlando, Ashley stores are corporate owned. And so uh, we're just city furniture stores, but we're going after First one's 86, the next one's 120. Our for, focus is gonna be around 110, 120,000 square feet. Fewer stores, more of a destination. Southern California, I mean, that'd be hard, hard to find. Here in Orlando, there's land, and we were able to do that, and we're able to position ourselves. I think the future case, what the internet does is it provides tremendous transparency for everybody. So anybody who wants to shop for anything, you can find it in a nanosecond. And we've got to be a destination. We want to be a destination where we can drive more people to our showrooms and then give them a great experience. I think you can do that at a smaller or a larger showroom or a mega showroom. I think it's a matter of execution. And I think all, all those strategies can work well if you execute well. We, uh, about 20 years ago, almost by necessity, started developing our own brand. We always sold everybody else's brand, like most everybody else did. We were the largest Broyhill Lane Thomasville dealer in the country. And then when they had the opportunity and the, the plan to open up stores and compete with us and we, be exclusive in certain markets where we were, we went through the whole pattern of developing our own product. And now we're a branded retailer. So everything we sell is, is either Haverty's or co-branded except in, in mattresses. So the question is, are manufacturers' brands important or is the retail brand the most important? And I'll start back with you, Irv. I think it depends on the industry. In the furniture industry, over time, the stores become a, a more important brand than the manufacturer, with a few exceptions. Um, you know, I don't think people just generally come in saying, I want a fusion sofa or, you know, they, they, they really are coming in for a style, a look, a feel, and they really don't know the brands that maybe 20 or 30 years ago, a Thomasville, a Broyhill, a Henrodon, a Drexel, you know, those, today those brands are mostly irrelevant to the consumer who is shopping today. So today it's really more about the store. Now, uh, we're in a couple other industries. You take the uh, appliance or the electronics industry where it's very brand name driven, you know, if you, if you're in the electronics business and you don't sell Apple, you're probably not in the electronics business. Or if you're in the appliance business and you don't sell uh, Whirlpool or LG or Samsung. So they're driven much more by uh, their recognition of, of, and the value of brands where furniture, uh, I think today, the store is probably more important. Yeah. How about Brian? Yeah, I, I think we, we're thinking along the same lines there. Um, you know, one thing that I think all of us deal with is, you know, the, the customer's expectations. And, you know, when the customer's purchasing the product from, from uh, each of our stores, you know, then they're looking for the education. They're looking for, you know, the, the service when they have a problem, the delivery expectation or experience. So, you know, I think that, 
you know, in the end, it's all of our responsibility, both the manufacturer and the retailer, but I think that, you know, we need to take the accountability and the responsibility of creating that brand. And when a consumer makes that purchase and that end-to-end -end experience, at the end of the day, you know, we want them to think of, of our retailer, in, in this case, Jerome's. We want them to think of Jerome's and provide the best experience from the pre-shopping to the in-store experience to the post-delivery. And so, uh, you know, whether, whether it's uh, consumers, you know, for sure think of the manufacturer or the retailer, at least in our minds, um, you know, we're taking on that responsibility and want to own that experience in the brand. I think you've done a great job at Haverty's of uh, developing a great brand, and I think that was exactly the right strategy for you guys. <clears throat> but I, I think the uh, interesting question is, not whether the consumer prefers or not. Consumers prefer brands. I think the message is there's been an absence of brands. And I'd, I draw the analogy of what's going now through the digital disruption of our home furnishings industry to the, what the disruption of a global marketplace that happened. 25 years ago, if you wanted to buy nice furniture, you had to buy from those brands. You had no choice, and those brands were aligned to high-end furniture stores. In South Florida, it was Carl's and Bears that had them. In City Furniture, we were, we were relegated to get whatever was left over or, or affordable product. The globalization of the home furnishings industry disrupted it, and the brands didn't follow the disruption well. And I think there's a message to all of us in retail. If we don't, if we don't understand how we're getting disrupted right now, we're going to end up marginalized the way Thomasville and Drexel and a lot of those folks have been over the last number of years. But consumers prefer brands. We just don't have any to choose from. We bought Magnolia Home from Standard, and uh, that's been received well in select markets. People have a brand recognition, the brand affinity to that. I mean, the best example is Ashley. Uh, Ron and Todd have built an incredible powerhouse brand that has grown like crazy, and the, the consumer want something to trust. In the absence of brand, like Samsung, et cetera, they trust Nebraska, they trust Jerome's, they trust City, they trust Haverty, because they don't have anything else to hold on to. But if I were a manufacturer, I remember talking to Michael Amini many years ago, saying, hey, there's nobody in the high end developing a brand that's getting disrupted. You can develop a brand, and he's done a good job of that. I mean, he's moved in that direction, and there's some affinity towards that brand. So. I think there's an opportunity for both. If, uh, if a manufacturer wanted to develop a brand, they've got to invest in it, and they've got to build some. It's got to be, wh what do we do? Why does it matter? And, and build an affinity to the consumer. I would prefer for us to have more brands, but there are an absence of brands in the marketplace. Well, speaking of the mega brand you just talked about, uh, Ron Wanick last night told me at the cocktail party that Ashley is a nine billion dollar company and that's just counting their retail stores and what they manufacture so in the books you see it as three million or three and a half million but it's much bigger than that when you look at all their franchisees so that is the mega brand out there right now one of the differences amongst us is a public company versus a private company and what are the advantages and what are the disadvantages and uh, Haverty's is a public company. There are not many public furniture retailers. Uh, we've been public since 1929. We went uh, public uh, October 8th, 1929, right before the great crash. And that's why I'm sitting up here. <laughs> 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 I 
we like to say it's the luck of the Irish, which it was uh, rather lucky. But uh, we've been public, and it, it is an opportunity for us to, to let the associates, our team members, be part of that. We, we're able to give uh, stock grants, and we do, to our managers and our leaders, and it gives them an opportunity to grow with us, and it's liquid because it's a public market. But um, I also think that the reporting that we do, which is extraordinary just to be a public company, is good for us. It, it makes us operate better. Uh, we're, we're more transparent. The industry knows what we're doing. Our, our suppliers in Asia know what we're doing all the time. They can see our balance sheet. All of that is a, a difficult thing to manage in, in, the, in the home office, but I think it's, uh, it's been good for the company. So we also see and hear a lot about private equity coming into the industry, so we might want to comment on that. And, and Irv, you work for the biggest company out there, so. Well, we're quite lucky because we think and act like a private company, although we're part of a, a big uh, public company. But uh, that's one of the secret sauces of uh, Berkshire and, and Warren Buffett is, you know, he, he bought our business, believe it or not, uh, 35 years ago on a handshake, never took an audit. And today, in my mind, and I think in our people's minds, we think we own it 100%. We work like we own it 100%. And we get to do what we want to do. Um, and uh, so we, we, even though we're part of a public company, uh, a pimple on the, in, in terms of uh, the size of uh, Berkshire, but uh, um, we have the, you know, we, we run it just like uh, it was a family business, and we have family members still in the business, uh, thankfully, and, uh, um, you know, we fortunately only think about the long term. We're not worried about next month or next quarter or six months from now. It's really long-term thinking, and when you have that kind of environment, you just operate generally more rationally over a period of time, and I don't have to make the quarterly calls or the semi-annual calls, and I don't have to give estimates of where we're at here or there. And uh, um, so that entrepreneurship, that, that, that ability to run your business the way you would run it if you owned it 100%, um, just gives you a lot of latitude, and uh, it's been really, really a fun experience besides getting to learn a whole bunch of good learning lessons about long-term thinking and keep things simple, take care of the customers, things that are basic blocking and tackling that uh, oftentimes you forget about. And you've had a long-term relationship with Warren Buffett too, haven't you? Because he lives there and... He lives there and fortunate enough we probably get together every six, eight weeks just to have dinner. It's not right? about a formal meeting or this or house business or this or that, but just to, for us it's an education. And uh, you know, it's, it's an incredible, incredible uh, learning journey, um, so many life lessons. Um, you know, I'll never forget one of the key lessons is he's always talked about building trust and reputation, integrity and honesty. And 35 years ago, you know, he said, you know, make sure you, at whatever cost you always protect your reputation. And he says, you can call me anytime you want to call me about reputation. But before you call me, Act as if it's going to be reported by a critical reporter that's going to show up on the front page of the newspaper who is going to look at all sides of the equation. And if you think there's anything in that report 
that you'd be embarrassed about, you don't need to call me because you've got your answer. <laughs> it's, it's, it, it's those kinds of lessons that, uh, you know. Uh, you know the values. answer. You enough. know the answer before you start. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, look, I, I, think that, I think there's benefits, you know, there's benefits to, to both. Um, you know, we're a family-owned business and, and we embrace it. Um, you know, when, when I look at, you know, the thing, the benefits that it has within our business, I think culturally is, is the uh, first and foremost. I mean, culturally, you know, our employees of, you know, call them a thousand people roughly, um, they, they consider the business part of their family and, you know, everybody interacts that way. And so, you know, I think that there's, for us, a, a big cultural benefit. Um, and, you know, from, from the business side, private equity or, or public, um, you know, we, we're now competing with an additional 13 Bob stores that moved into, the, into Southern California in the last nine months. And, uh, you know, I think private equity and, and publicly traded companies, um, you know, they can invest much faster and much deeper. And, you know, it'd take us 13 years to open 13 new stores. Uh, we're, we're pacing at about, about a store a year. And so we're, we're much, you know, we're much slower and strategic to investments. But the other side of that is that uh, I think the benefit also allows us to um, execute much faster. You know, if, if there's a change in strategy from day to day or week to week, uh, we, we can execute within, you know, our store base, I think, much quicker. So, you know, there's pros and cons to both, but, uh, but I think that you embrace, uh, you embrace what it is that you are. Uh, we like being private. Is that because you don't have to answer questions or what? No, you gotta take, in the furniture business, you gotta take the long haul. You gotta play the long game and, uh, and there's gonna be ups and downs. We gotta take, make, right now we gotta make massive investments in the internet, on our website and our content and building for the future. And if we don't, I don't, I think we'll be marginalized over time. We have to make long-term investments. Now with Warren, you can take that point of view. With private equity, um, it's, it's just, they're in the money business. They're in the money business, we're in the furniture business. And they're short-term thinkers you're in, the you're in the furniture business in a, in a public company. You're in the furniture business. They're in the money business. And they want to buy and sell in a short period of time. And I've seen too many times the losers on that are uh, the people, if they go out of business, the, the associates that have, the employees that have built their careers trying to build that business. And, and I always think that that's, a, that's the short straw. And I don't want to see that happen with us. Well, the question with private equity is what they tend to do is they come in and, and they use your assets to borrow money and put it back on the company. Right. And, and our feeling all along is that in the furniture industry, it's too cyclical. It is a cyclical business. We have to acknowledge that. And that we can't handle a lot of debt. It, we're, we, are, we don't have any debt, don't want to have any debt. And we believe that that's one of the things that will keep the longevity of the company because there are downturns. It will happen. And uh, re trying to refinance a furniture company in a recession like 789 was impossible. And that's why so many companies went under. So the, the leverage is what would concern me with uh, private equity and, and what they throw on you and, and require you to pay in the interest and the, the management. But there are a lot of companies that have done well with it and they turn around and, and are successful. 
I wanted to, uh, I've got other things, questions here, but I wanted to open it up to the audience <laughs> to see if y'all have some things you'd like us to address. Uh, and Clarence, uh, you yes. know we kind of seeded the well, right? We've, we've been asking folks some questions. So I'm just gonna get things started with some questions that were submitted anonymously. After I ask them, you may know why. Um, <laughs> There, there was a cover story in Furniture Today recently uh, about a promotional company sending flyers out to Houston area stores suggesting they rethink their business because there is a very large major new competitor sitting to my left here um, coming to town. Three of the four of you compete, all four of you, even Brian, you have a major new competitor. How do you view that when a major new competitor comes to town. Hey, Bill, I think you ought to hand the mic to the gentleman right there. <laughs> to, to, we'll let him rebut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We would love to hear Jake's comments on, uh, on that, uh, but <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, we, we had Nebraska, as we just talked about his size store, come into, at the time, our best market, and we had 12 stores and cover it because we grew just over the years, over the decades in Dallas and did quite well. Um, it's, uh, it's not our best market right now. Uh, Atlanta's our best market. Um, but we have figured out how to um, survive and do well with Nebraska. But you have to be very good at what you do and know exactly what you do and not try to be who they are. Um, I think our own brands has helped us. We develop our own brands, we design them, we, we source them uh, both domestically and, and in Asia and, and the product's gotta be right or it doesn't matter. So, uh, and then we're just now facing our new friend, Keith, who's, we moved into his territory and now he's moving into ours closer in central Florida. Uh, so we, we both try to figure out how to fit in and how to, how to serve our customer in those regions and it's, it's not easy, and we do take share from each other. Uh, you, you have to figure out where your position is and be loyal to that, to that direction. Brian, you've got a new competitor in your market. Um, how do you view that, and how do you adapt? Um, so I, I think Clarence said it perfectly. I mean, uh, you know, we, we readied for, for a good year leading up to uh, their entry. And, you know, I think that it made us better. I mean, it, it really, we looked at all aspects of the business from, you know, our, our brand and our advertising and marketing to our assortment and our value propositions and, um, and really focused on who we are, okay? What, what do we do best and, and what has allowed us to expand from store to store and, and uh, zip code to zip code and, and really focus around the things that that we feel that we do best, and we got better at those things. Instead of trying to do the things that, that they do, it, that maybe we didn't, and we didn't focus on much, um, we really focused on, on getting better at the things that we do best and differentiate us. Keith and, and Irv, you guys are kind of the ones entering new markets. Um, making I, th I think competition is the message. Uh, it's it's and I think to look just at the brick and mortar stores that open up, let's, let's stand back. We're, we're losing share left and right, not to other brick and mortar stores. We're losing share left and right to Wayfair and Amazon. That's the real threat to any of us from my, from my point of view. And they're, they're, the, they're the grand disruptors 
and they're showing consumers who are essentially the millennials that you all, we all want to attract how to shop. And if we're counting on baby boomers to support our business for the next 10 years, we're in, into a marginalized business. The reality is not whether we move in or there's another store. I look at our competitors in terms of brick and mortar almost more like partners. I see Amazon and Wayfair as the competitor. They are clearly the competitors. If somebody's shopping Haverty's and not City Furniture in any of our markets, that's great because they're we, we've got different stratification. And I bet Jake is going to find a position in the markets that he goes into that he's very successful at. And there's going to be a new equilibrium. But the real risk is everybody losing share online. And that's happening. And I don't see enough about what, what this industry, what we're doing as far as bricks and mortar across the board of, um, of understanding that and adapting to the new reality. It's almost like Thomasville and Drexel and Hendredon and all those guys saying, no, China's not going to be important. We're going to continue to make stuff in North Carolina and do it the way it always was. I'm here to say I don't think that's going to work. The strategy, we're getting disrupted as an industry. And the brick and mortar guys coming and going, yeah, there's, if Nebraska moves into your town or if Jake moves into your town, it's a new, it's a new equilibrium. But it doesn't mean you can't be successful. But what happens if we continue to lose share and share over time to digital resources attacking the millennials who are going to be the customers of the future? That, to me, is a bigger concern. That's a perfect segue to another question that we received um, from folks. A lot of the discussion today is about improving the in-store experience. And your new store here is, is about in-store experience. But until the customer comes into your store, they can't experience it. All of those beautiful things, all of that beautiful product is invisible. How are you trying to get and what are all of you doing to get that consumer in the store, to reach them through new ways of communicating? Anybody want to? I'll just start by saying we're investing heavily in our website, investing heavily in our content, investing heavily in the team. We used to have a few people. Now we've got a herd of a lot of smart young people and their, biz, their share of the business going up. The website is our front door. It's not the store anymore. The website is the front door, so that has to be shiny and clean and nice and inspiring. So it's all the stuff related to that, and that's, what we're, that's where we're focusing our effort. Plus digital, everything digital, everything social media. And we're not anywhere near where we need to be. If you look at our website now, it's good. Where we will be in a year or two years, it's got to be a whole lot better. Brian? No, I 100% agree. I mean, we've got... Uh, We've got kind of a mantra going through the, the organization right now that um, our website is our flagship store. And you know, going back in you know, traditional brick and mortar, you know, you, your, your next new store was always your flagship and you made it better and prettier and a better experience. And you know, you'd invest tons of money into that. And you know, our, our investments and uh, what we're earmarking for next year is first and foremost going to the website. And you know, Keith hit it on the head. Um, that's the big disruptor, and, and I agree, as an organization and as an industry, um, we're, we haven't been as serious about it as I think that we need to be. And, um, you know, so, you know, what are we doing about it? We're investing in, in the creative, in the online experience, in the catalog, in the assortment, in the value proposition, um, and, you know, in, in terms of the digital or the media allocation, more and more of that media allocation is going to digital. And, whether that's search, whether that's 
uh, social media. You know, we, we've got to we've got to get customers, you know, in the store, but also transacting online. And it really doesn't matter. Um, you know, we have an entire infrastructure that's built to sell furniture. And it doesn't matter if we're selling furniture through a transaction online or driving traffic into the stores. But, uh, you know, I think that one of the challenges we've all been facing here over the last couple of years, and I hear, you know, whether it's hallway conversations or over a beer is, um, you know, traffic in the store and traffic in the store and traffic in the store. Well, you know, that traffic in the store, that trend is, uh, is, is a result of the entire shopping behavior changing where you know, consumers are doing so much research online and where they used to jump in a car and, and drive to five different retailers and check out your showrooms for hours at a time, now they've, they've done all their pre-work online and they've narrowed it down to their intent to visit. And so you know, it's, it's more about making sure that that website is educating the customer on what it is that you sell, why they, they should purchase from you, and, and then delivering that experience at the store level. But uh, you know, I don't think brick and mortar is going away. And, and I don't think that uh, you know, online is, is, is not gonna make it. I think that you know, we're dealing with the fact that both are here to stay and we need to adjust and that's the new retail. Irv, you've recently unveiled a, a complete new digital strategy. Can you share some of that? Well, I think the important thing is you gotta look at it from the customer view and wherever the customer is is where you should be if you're trying to get them to shop with you. And we don't care whether it's online or whether it's in store. Of course, we'd like traffic in store because we think that's part of our differentiation. But it takes big investment um, in, uh, in both platforms and content and relevance. And uh, um, you just, you just want to make sure that you're delivering on that customer experience no matter what it is. And, uh, it's, uh, it's critical. You'll get eaten up alive if you don't adapt and change and reinvent and, and uh, uh, um, be more relevant to the customers who are shopping today. And you mentioned um, in the first question, first of all, Jake is as, as good an operator as there is anywhere in the country. And uh, um, uh, if you were to come into my town, you know, I'd be going through the same exercises. You know, you need to figure out who you are and what, what it is you do and how your differentiation and, and uh, um, really understand, you know, why are people shopping you versus somebody else. But, you know, it, it's, a, it's a credit to his, his, his business and his reputation and he will have impact. But the bigger picture is the competitors that are taking away pieces of our pie every single day, whether it be Amazon or whether it be Wayfair or whether it be Target or, or whether it be direct-to-consumer or it be to, to uh, you know, uh, uh, um, some of the competitors in, in the room here. You know, we're competing with everybody and so it's our job to take care of the customer in the best way we know, know how and figure out a way to, uh, uh, to deliver on that expectation. Clarence? Well, it does begin with the customer, whatever she wants. So everything we've done as far as our website and our operations to make it fully transparent. So that if you are here and you want something delivered in uh, DC, you can do it online. You don't have to talk to anybody. It's all transparent. It's all integrated throughout our system. And our biggest uh, investment this coming year will be in IT. Our biggest department by a long shot in our home office is our IT staff. and and. We, uh, are, we have our team here, and most of our energy, we debate all the time 
where do we put our marketing dollars? Where do we put, we put more into, uh, more into mobile and certainly there and more into social and more into search and, and more in electronic and we moved away from print. So it, it's, it's constantly something we're trying to address to, to drive traffic but also to make sure that we're addressing the customer the way she wants to be addressed. Okay, before I hog the spotlight here, do we have some other questions? We do. <coughs> right over. Hold on, Patrick. She, do you have a mic? Just look to your left. She's got a microphone. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. I thought you could hear me because I'm loud. Um, so a question for you related to logistics. Amazon um, revolutionized their industries competing with Walmart and Target based on logistics, based on prime, based on two-day delivery. They're attempting to do the same thing with big and bulky last mile, spending tens of millions of dollars to build out a nationwide network. And last mile has become a very hot part of the supply chain and a competitive um, differentiator. So my question is, what is your logistics strategy going forward? And how do you plan to compete with the Amazons and the Wayfarers and the fact that they've created this new threshold drop-in-a-box delivery? And number two, uh, a lot of regional folks that we do business with, they want to deliver across the country. They want to they sell online. In New York, they have you know, 30 stores, but they want to deliver in California. I don't understand that. I don't understand why if you have a website and you're New York-based, and all your logistics are based in New York, why you think you're going to be successful against Amazon and Wayfair shipping across the country when there is no UPS, FedEx delivery network for big and bulky? Because it's time-consuming, it's expensive, reverse logistics, all the things you understand. So number one, what is your logistics strategy to compete with the online retailers? Number two, what is your feeling about having a website and trying to sell and deliver big and bulky nationwide? Our philosophy is to deliver within our footprint, to answer your second question. So we have three major distribution centers, one right down the street in Lakeland, one in uh, Brazelton, our main facility in Georgia, and one in Dallas, which we just expanded. We will not deliver outside of our footprint furniture. We'll do UPS, but we think that that control is critical. <clears throat> All of our associates in a distribution in our warehouse are our people. They're our team members, the people in your home delivering are our drivers, they're our trucks, and we believe very strongly in that. I know that's not how the industry works, and I don't believe that that's how uh, Amazon or Wayfair work, but uh, we think controlling that last mile is critical, and it's a transparent, I, I mentioned that earlier, you can go anywhere within that footprint and have it delivered, know who your driver is, when he's gonna be there, and, and be able to track it all the way through. So. Controlling that last mile is, I think, a real competitive uh, advantage. To answer your second question, we pretty much stick to our area too. We know where we can service them, we know we can deliver it, we know we can um, exceed their expectations. And uh, we tried at one point shipping all over, not to say that it would never happen again, but at the end of the day, it's expensive. Furniture is not an easy product. It does require a special handling and uh, uh, you really have to know what you're doing in the logistics side of the business. And so, you know, anybody can do anything at, at a cost. And, you know, the, the real question comes that, you know, every month and every year we're in the business to try to improve people's lifestyles, but to try to do it somewhat profitably. 
And there's a lot of players in the business that, you know, um, have different views of that. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, as long as we take care of our customers and logistically, um, we can deliver to them and they'll be satisfied and they don't have to go through a whole bunch of exchanges or returns or scratches or nicks. We want to be able to service them. And uh, you start shipping stuff all over the country and there's a lot of people doing it, doing it successfully. It's just a, from our perspective, we know what we do and where we can handle it and what we can deliver and how we can satisfy customers and we're gonna probably stick to the areas where we understand best. Yeah, uh, the, so the first question, um, you know, Amazon and, and their focus on that last mile and or getting into furniture in a bigger way. Um, you know, I think that, you know, it really comes down to, again, focusing on what you do best. And I think that that's an area that, you know, we as retail or as brick and mortar uh, do better. And, you know, so we've, we've invested there and actually uh, continued to evolve that last mile in terms of the experience to make sure that we're providing that much better of an experience. And uh, we also do same day delivery. Uh, we focus and invest in our inventory to make sure that our in-stocks are very high so that as consumers come in and, and, uh, and visit the store and experience the store, find something that they like, that it's in stock, we can deliver it same day or next day, and really focus on that part of, of the experience. Uh, there's other things that will never be as good as Amazon. I mean, when you talk about you know, the catalog and the breadth <laughs> of the assortment. So, you know, we, we know that we'll never be as good there, but in terms of that last mile and that consumer experience, we can own that. We can provide a much better experience than I think, um, you know, they can or ever will. Um, the, the second part to the question, we, we also are really focused around our markets. Um, not to say that we haven't had conversations. I'd be lying if I said that we hadn't. You know, it's, uh, you know, that pressure of, of growth and opportunity um, puts a bug in, in your mind, but then we go back to, you know, differentiating and making sure that the things that we're doing, we're doing best. And, uh, and until we feel that we have a differentiated product that would be appealing or compelling to a customer outside of our trading market, then, uh, then you know, we'll, we'll be patient and, and wait for the opportunities. Well, we were smart enough to figure out that being on the tip of a South Florida peninsula is not a good base for a national distribution model. <laughs> so we focus on uh, our trading area and our delivery. We do offer free shipping and have for three years successfully. It works well. Uh, we offer same-day delivery since 2002, and that works well, too. So logistically, we feel like we've got some, some strength there. Um, first of all, Bill, congratulations on a great panel. You guys are really terrific. It's a, a, a great balanced group, and we appreciate you being here. Um, one of the things that I wanted to ask, you know, we all shop online, and when we shop online, the it's all about the information, and it's all about the, the more information that we have, uh, the more engaged you are on the page, the more the chance that you're going to buy something. And is there anything, you know, translating that to the store and to that most important, 
important informational piece, that retail salesperson. Is there anything in the, in the world of training or anything, techniques uh, that you've done recently that, that has really made a difference in, in the way your people are trained to have that information either at their disposal or to just keep that customer engaged? In the store or not? In the store, retail salesperson in the store. We, we have added tablets that have full access to all of the information that uh, you can make a, make a transaction, you can set deliveries, you can change the colors on the fabric. So you don't have to leave the customer. I mean, that's the whole main thing there is that engagement with the customer at the point of sale is so critical that we want them to have full access to that. And it also goes back to the size of our stores. If you have a 35,000 square foot store and you've got 55 to 60,000 square foot of merchandise, you've got to be able to demonstrate that uh, well. So uh, that technology is critical at the point of sale. So that, that's what we've, what we've invested in. And we've done similar. Our salespeople have tablets and uh, um, they have complete access to our inventory, complete access to our website, complete access to anybody else's website. So when they're working with the customer, they can get the information they want very quickly, still have that relationship with the customer. Our catalogs are online. If you want a special order, uh, a product, and you want to change a fabric, or you want to do it, they can just do it right from there, just to try to make it as seamless and as frictionless as possible, so it's smooth and easy. Yeah, similar. So, um, you know, we're, we're arming our, our in-store in sales associates with as much technology as we can to be able to uh, pull information off of the website or customers coming in saying that they've seen, you know, seen a certain product and you know, be able to go back and forth between in-store and online. Uh, with that said, I think that there's, you know, there's more and more tools becoming available very quickly, whether that's um, you know, photos of 360 viewers or uh, 3D room planners. So you know, we're, we're looking at all of, all of those tools and have plans to invest you know, in 2019. Uh, we think that it's critical to make sure that uh, you're giving customers as much information as, as you possibly can and educating them. And, uh, and making that available in store as well. Yeah, uh, likewise, uh, my two partners over here, Gary and Steve, uh, headed up uh, a great platform. Uh, I, IBM and Apple, work, we worked with IBM and Apple and developed a mobile sales platform for all of our sales associates in our city and Ashley showrooms, they, so they can transact everything and throughout the whole showroom. That has greatly improved the customer experience, greatly improved their productivity, greatly enhanced every aspect of our business, but it's just the basis. Because if you, if you realize where the furniture industry is going, we should be going into the golden age of furniture because for the millennials building households at the same time, technology, can, we can translate that back to a huge competitive advantage in our showrooms when we have the right technology in the hands of the sales associates. It's not just picking out this sofa, it's using augmented reality to be able to take pictures of their home and put our furniture into their home and not the way it is currently now with a grainy little picture, but a fully uh, inspirational shot changing the color of their walls, changing the cover of the fabric, changing the pillows, suggesting through artificial intelligence the top five area rugs or the top five wall decor or, or lamps or coffee tables to go with each group. 
we can finally, in the next few years, create a situation where she can get fully inspired about everything in our showrooms, and the technology will be in the hands of all of our associates, and it is better, this will be better in the showroom than online, because it'll de you'll have the opportunity to be able to work with somebody who's technically proficient at being able to do this. So the whole technology stuff. But right now, what we need from our suppliers is product information put into our portals, and, and that helps drive search engine and all the, all the stuff. So uh, it's, it's all about technology right now. We're in the technology business. We just happen to sell furniture. And everybody here needs to recognize they're in the tech. If you're not in the technology business, you, you need to be. Every, every CIO conference we go to, you've got to be a technology company that happens to be selling furniture. One question I wanted to have. Um, we, I, I'm a, as a sales rep, we have all these wonderful companies here in Florida that are growing into everybody's uh, territory and working, working amongst them. How do you deal with distribution issues from major companies that you are already doing business with and are moving into different territories? You're talking about manufacturers. How do you, how do you distinguish the different product? Is that... Well, it, it really does start with your, what we've done is our own product and our own brand. I mean, you have to have control of that to be able to compete with these other players who are trying to develop the same product. Or sell, it, you can't be selling the same product that everybody else sells, in my opinion, in the furniture business, and particularly where in our price points, and expect to be able to be profitable. I think you have to have your own brand, uh, or at least exclusive product. He sells everything. <laughs> I think distribution gets more on the other side of us than on our side of us. You know, to, to, you know um, uh, when we went into Texas as an example, you know, I, I may have had an exclusive in Nebraska or Kansas, but and I didn't expect it in, in Texas. It, it just, you know, I'm the new guy and it's a free country and, you know, you, you let the customer vote. And so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a, as you well know, a, a, a tough subject, I'm sure, from the vendors and it also is from the retailers. But at the end of the day, you should work on making sure that you try to satisfy your customers. And, and uh, um, in our case, you know, I, I, I think it was important to have the brand selection that we needed to have. And uh, I wasn't as interested in the exclusive side. On the other hand, today in the furniture business, you can white label it, you can private label it. You know, a lot of people really don't understand most of the brands. There are some key brands you for sure want to have, but you know, they, they just don't come in asking for sofas or bedroom sets. You know, they're really looking for a look and a style and a feel. Uh, I, th I think our, our vendor partners, our manufacturers do a pretty good job of, of helping each of us to differentiate. Uh, within, you know, within competing markets. So, um, you know, that's evolved over the years, and, and I think that, you know, they, they do a pretty good job. And in the rare case that we see something, then we just beat them up, throw them out, and move on. So. <laughs> <laughs> 
We like to compete. Uh, the reality is, is it's a competitive world, and uh, we have to do what's best for the customer. And uh, so there's, we, but we enter into it wide open, well, with eyes wide open. Uh, Rick Anderson from Tempur-Pedic's here. We buy Tempur-Pedic, and it's sold in a, a countless number of showrooms, and uh, we do well with it. And, and he sets a good ground rule. The, the, we're happy to compete on any product. The only exception where we like to where we like to have some control is when we work with a vendor. We feel like if we work with a vendor on a product to develop a product, that we ask for exclusivity on that. Seems fair. Hey, Bill, I wanted to bring up the uh, the one question. Make sure we have time. Is uh, the tariff issue, and and how each of us. We know we've got this, this massive tsunami coming at us at the end of the month, possibly, or not, who knows. But, but what are we doing about that? And what have you seen ha happen to your lineup uh, in preparation for the tariff that hit and the one that might happen? Keith. You know, it's, I've almost got mixed feelings about this in the, a very unique situation. When we started City Furniture in 1994, you know, before that we sold waterbeds, we started in 1994, I had two, we had two sofas that were the starting price sofas in the South Florida market, and we sold them for $299. And I still remember one of them was from Gerald Washington, it was called Fantasia. Ooh, it was good. <laughs> it was a velvet flock, and it was, another one was a black and white from who, who knows who, it was $299. We now have eight. We have eight sofas that are $299. Eight room groups. Do I want to do that? No. Get on Wayfair right now, look up furniture, go to sofas, and look at the first page and see how many of that 16 are under $300. A lot of them. There'll probably only be a couple over $400. The customers want inexpensive furniture. I don't, whether we like it or not, we've got to give them what they want. So that's what we're doing. Now, if everything, if all the prices went up because of a tariff, would that be the end of the world? I, I'm a free trade guy. But I'm just here to say, furniture has lost share of consumer spending because we've competed so efficiently on a global level that we brought prices down. With dining room sets we sold in 1994 for $399. We've got $399 dining room sets now. You know, we got a lot more expensive stuff too, but if the prices all went up a little bit, would that be the end of the world? I'm not so convinced. So we're trying to mitigate, but at the end of the day, I don't think people are going to spend a I think we might comp up. I know that's a very unpopular thing to say, but I'm not so sure it's the end of the world. It's optimistic. It's optimistic. <laughs> yeah. I don't know that people start saying, well, hey, sofa went from $5.99 to $6.99. It's going to be, uh, I'm not going to shop for sofas anymore. I'm not sure about that. Irv? Well, that's the $50 million question, is it? Yeah, maybe $50 the, million. The, 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 yeah, you're probably like, excuse me, billion, not million. But, uh, you know, I think it'll hurt other businesses a lot more than us. Anytime you, you know, if there's a 25% tariff and the impact on that, and it causes prices and it causes customers to either, I mean, whether it's the furniture industry or not, as the word gets out that all of a sudden prices increase or these kinds of amounts, people start tightening up, they may spend less, and it's, 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 a, it's a risk. It is a risk. I'm more concerned from the not from the furniture industry, but more the U.S. economy. Exactly. Because if it hits a lot of other categories, I think it'll hurt them. Yeah. But I don't think we would necessarily get hurt solely. 
I think we would get hurt from the overall impact on the economy because I think it would negatively impact the, the economy. But I don't think it would kill the furniture business, is my personal opinion. Ryan? Yeah, look, I, I'm not looking forward to it. Um, <laughs> you know, the 10% um, earlier in the year, I think that we all weathered pretty well with, through partnerships and, and exchange rates and, um, you know, as you talk about an additional 15%, um, you know, tightening up in, in those areas, they're already gone through, the, through that first 10%. So, you know, it really comes down to decisions of, you know, making pricing changes and, you know, as, as, long, as, as long as we're all disciplined, then, um, you know, then maybe we do benefit. I mean, who, who knows what it looks like, but um, so what are we doing about it? We're, we're looking at a mix of a lot of things. I mean, we're having, you know, discussions with our current partners in Asia and where there's opportunities and we're taking advantage of those opportunities. We're looking um, at shifting some goods that, uh, that we feel just can't sustain that kind of price increase. And we're looking for, uh, for opportunities for you know, where, where we're gonna need to increase prices. And we think that you know, there is that room. So uh, a, a mix of, of a lot of things at the end of the day, um, you know, we're not looking forward to it, but, uh, but things happen and, and I agree, there's no question that we'll, we'll survive and we'll all figure out a way to thrive at the same time. It's already been tremendously disruptive in Asia, as you know. I mean, yeah. the factories that are closing, uh, people are moving out of China because it's too difficult to deal there. Uh, and moving to Vietnam, so many people are trying to move to Vietnam, everybody's trying to do it at the same and that's time. That's not gonna work. Right, I just talked to Jeff Cook a minute ago and he said at Marcor they're closing all of their Chinese factories and moving them. And, and uh, that's from a, a Richard Fong, who's Chinese. So, I mean, it's, it's dramatically affecting, and there'll be disruption, because you can't get all the product immediately. It has to be remade, resourced, and re repositioned. So there's going to be disruption, whether the tariff happens or not. Uh, but uh, most people here feel like, it's going to be. It's going to hit in some way, for some period of time. But. We have time Real quick, guys. With Amazon and Wayfair clearly controlling the conversation, especially with millennials, and their focus on low end. Keith, your point. You know, under two hundred dollars, three hundred dollars sofas. What is the future of better goods, and if you have time, great. If not, I understand. How has Amazon and Overstock changed your messaging to the millennials to get them in the store? Our, our focus and our growth in upholstery has been in the better end and in custom and special order. We, we added um, decorators in all of our showrooms. We didn't have decorators. We're doing free in-home in, in uh, designer <laughs> service. So. We're trying to provide more product and quicker delivery on special order, which we think is, um, is where our realm will be and should be, providing better quality product, more customization quicker. I would say Amazon is the classic disruptor. You know, they're starting out with low-end mattresses, they're starting out with low-end sofas, and they're gonna to try to dominate that and they've certainly had, had big results. And before you know it, they'll move up and they'll move up. And so 
our, our plan is, is, you know, we just got to compete like with them like any other competitor and, and uh, uh, you know, make sure we're delivering on the customer's expectations. If they want a $2.99 sofa, they can buy it. And if they want better end goods that require in-home services, we want to be able to provide that too. They are powerful and they have people's behavior figured out. They've made it easy, simple, frictionless, uh, seamless. And so, you know, they are a threat and uh, you just have to figure out how you're going to compete with them. But uh, you can't put your head in the sand and think that they're not going to be powerful. And today they're powerful and people think, you know, they sell a lot of mattresses online and they're, they're selling a lot of popular price kind of things. But um, I've seen many industries that once they get into the low fare stuff, they sort of move up. And before you know it, your business is gone. Yeah, we uh, look at the end of the day. You, you got to have uh, you got to have a mix of opening price point. You know, and um, I love Keith's line. We we don't want to sell it, but um, you know the, the awareness is there now. And uh, Amazon, Wayfair, the online guys, you know, the betting guys, um, you know, they're creating that awareness. And I think over the last five years plus. You know, as as brick and mortar, we started to move up, and we did you know very well with better goods. And you know, there was a lot of boutique guys out there, whether it's Resto or or West Elm or you know Pottery Barn, some of those guys that have lived up there. And we moved our assortment up there and did did quite well. Well, now the trend is the other way, that uh, that there's more and more exposure and awareness at that lower end, and so you know we're we're moving some of our assortment there not a whole lot um to have something and uh and show consumers that you know we, we have an assortment that fits their need whether they're high end or low end uh ray I, I, we're not overly fixated about the low end we just want to make sure we protect that so i we feel like there's tremendous opportunity for better goods everything that shows us about millennials is they are style conscious they're value conscious, but they're willing to spend a lot of money on furniture when you give them what they want. So, I mean, we're, we're growing all parts of that business and, and, and anticipate that will continue to grow. We just have to be relevant to the millennials in a way they want. We just have, the conversation here has actually sparked one, one Yeah, I'm, no, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Clarence, I misspoke if you read it that way. <clears throat> Mark Horace. Oh, he's got to correct me. Okay. Well, I uh, just wanted, it's a pretty big statement, so I didn't mean to take it that way. Uh, Mark Orr is expanding the factories in, in China, especially with the automated factory that's the only, only one in the world. That was about an $80 million investment. ART has transitioned away from Mark Orr because of the growth of all the retail stores of ART, the retail stores of Mark Orr. Those factories are consuming. Um, producing for more of the China product. Right. While the sister companies have had to diversify and go to other countries. Uh, globally, Vietnam is just one of those. But we've been doing that for about, for about five years. So our headquarters will shift. Markor continues to grow. And those factories that you've been in, you've all been in, will, will continue to operate and expand. Thank you, Jeff. Yeah, no, sorry, the confusion. We get some entertainment going, huh? <laughs> All right, so we're going to take a little break, give you a chance to stretch your legs. Please enjoy some refreshments, courtesy of Progressive Leasing. Thank you, gentlemen, for your time. 
Well, I hope you enjoyed some of the insights from that panel. Next week, we're going to come back with a treat and offer you an inside look at this year's leaders panel. Our moderator this year was Rob Burnett from Badcock Home Furniture and More. And our panelists included Jerry Baer from Bears Furniture, Jesus Capo from El Dorado, and Bill Daniels from Furniture Fair. We hope you enjoy hearing retailers' insights on their businesses and addressing the issues that they find are most important. Please join us next week when we will return to our regularly scheduled programming of On the Record. Thanks and have a great week.